People who are concerned about sexual abuse in the Orthodox world often find tremendous fault with certain parts of the Haredi population, and frankly, at times with good reason. It's claimed that some of these communities aren't willing to see what's really going on and would rather hide their heads in the sand. And even more, even worse, some of these communities too often seem willing to cover up cases of abuse and blame the victim rather than the abuser. The modern Orthodox, or in Israel, the Datilumi communities, on the other hand, are more likely viewed as dealing with sexual abuse forthrightly. While the Datilumi world is far from immune from predators and sexual crime, at least it knows the problem and acknowledges it. But is that really true? Or does the Datilumi population have its own blind spots? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCopyHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, founding dean of Yeshiva Darche Noam of Muncie, is an innovative educator, author, and child safety advocate. He published child safety books that are in 100,000 homes in three languages, as well as beginner Gemara and Chumash workbooks. Rabbi Horowitz conducts child abuse prevention and parenting workshops in communities around the world, and he received the prestigious Covenant Award in 2008 in recognition of his contribution to Jewish education. He's currently in Israel, spearheading an initiative to distribute 30,000 free Hebrew copies of his book, Let's Stay Safe, designed specifically for the Datilumi population in Israel. Rabbi Horowitz and I discussed why the Datilumi population in particular needs additional awareness regarding sexual abuse, how schools and other institutions should implement protocols, how to deal with the gray area where behavior seems questionable but was meant innocuously, and much more. Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, I'm honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you, Rav Scott. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward. I know you're in Israel to spearhead a new initiative you're involved in. What specifically are you doing now? So we decided to take a leap and uh, distribute uh, nearly 30,000 copies of our Dati Lumi Hebrew child safety book, Levetach, um, in this week's edition of Makar Rishon, in order to get the book out to more Datilumi families so they can have these very important conversations with their children. So you're giving out 30,000 copies for free, essentially? Yes, yes. We raise money from donors, from Israeli donors and American donors, to be able to you know, expand the notion of child safety and specifically practical tools. The book is a, is a reader, it's a picture book, that gives parents a comfortable way to have conversations with their children about child safety. So the research shows that the best conversations are when the parents are relaxed and project a very small amount of anxiety to their children. In other words, teach your children... And anxiety is a good thing, a small amount. As Dr. David Pelkowitz says, who helped, who reviewed every page of the book for us, he was very kind to give us a lot of time when we were developing the book the anxiety level should be about two, three out of 10. In other words, important enough to know that that this is, you know, this is important. This is big stuff. Big stuff, but not that you frighten them because the research shows adults as well. When you frighten people, the fear, Maslow would say, Abraham Maslow would say that the fear crowds out their ability to think. So for example, even if I, when I get up and do a child safety class here, I speak in a soft tone, I introduce, I say, look, I'm gonna give you the tools to have these conversations with your children. I, I never tell them horror stories or anything like that. The research shows that if I'd start with a story, you know, there was a kid in the neighborhood that was abused. The research shows that by the time they hit the door, they wouldn't even remember a thing I said. All they would remember is that they were frightened. So, that was scary, I'm tuning out. Right, but they, they fear, they get so frightened, it's normal. You know, you're worried about what's going on. You can't, you can't concentrate. So, so you just deny and say, that's not gonna happen to me, I don't wanna hear about it. Or you, you're, you know, fear of flight, you just, you just, it just crowds everything out. So the way we, we did the book in a very, there are no frightening pictures, it's all very relaxed. And we start with a general safety, you know, crossing the street, putting on a helmet. Then we go to, we have a few pages on stranger danger. Be careful of strangers, don't get, which, is, which research shows is a tiny percentage of abuse cases. And then we go to the real stuff there, which is 
basically the message messages children need to know to stay safe, which is no secrets from parents. Uh, no one should ever tell you not to speak, you know, to keep something from your parents. My body belongs to me. Um, is good touching bad touching? And you have permission to get away from a situation that you feel uncomfortable in. It's really the beginning of a conversation. This isn't the end of it's it. It's opening up a conversation. It's opening a conversation. I did notice that when looking at the book, it opens up with innocuous issues right. like street safety, cross right. at a safe place, and you move into that. So that was a very deliberate program. Oh, absolutely. This was so carefully planned. One of those pictures, quite literally, in the English book, we went through 33 revisions of that page to get just the images right. And like I mentioned, Dr. Tversky, Dr. Tversky and Dr. David Pelkowitz really coached us how to get these messages out. I mean, literally 33 revisions wow. because we wanted to get that just right in, in a way that gives the message across in a way that's not, that's not intimidating. It's interesting that you said that through Makor Rishon, you're distributing 30,000 copies specifically to the Dati Lumi, the national religious world. I'm curious about why you're aiming specifically for that sector as opposed to the religious world in general. I know it's also out in the Haredi world. There are Hebrew, Yiddish, and English editions. But why is this specific initiative aimed towards the Dati Lumi community? Uh, so that's a good question and a fair question. To be perfectly honest, uh, you know, we rolled out the Haredi book several years ago. And the Dati book, I believe, is about 18 months ago. And we noticed that you know, we reprinted the Dati book. You know, thankfully, we, it's it's what you would say, you know, a few thousand books is considered a bestseller. So thank God it's selling well, but not at the numbers that the Haredi book is selling. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer in getting honest data and tell me what I'm doing, what I should do differently, you know, so and get the real information. It's the only way you you can, you know, achieve your mission. I mean, it sounds almost counterintuitive because in the public imagination, at least right. as I've oh, yeah. seen it, sure. the Haredi world doesn't want to hear about it, exactly. and the Datsilumi world is wide open and wants to hear more about it. Exactly. So it's strange so that that's it's selling why, better there. Right, right. So it was man bites dog, right. So we, we were looking at it and saying, why is this so? And I reached out to educators, to parents, to therapists in the Dati community to f- try to get a handle on, on why this is so. And, you know, several very real ideas came up that why it would be challenging. We decided to distribute the book through stores. We went through several iterations with the Haredi book when it came out. Um, I raised money from donors. We tried giving them out free at, at classes. We tried. We worked through uh, uh, um, having doctors give them out at examinations. That we did. we did a lot of different ways of a delivery system. 10 months, 12 months of doing this, we came up with the idea, uh, Stuart Schnee is our, whom you know, of course, who made the introduction, is our Israeli representative. He moved us to working with stores. You have a delivery system. It operates. We don't have storage and all of that logistics. It's there, and we subsidize it. So both of the books are available in Yefeinov stores all around the country and other stores. They're available for 15 shekel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the joke, you, you know, we lose money in every copy, but we make it up on volume. <laughs> so, so, so right. you know, we raise money and, and we're glad to subsidize it. You know, we found that, like, like I said, it's available. And also people have to put some skin in the game. You know, when you get something for free, it doesn't have that right. same value. So, so why is it that you think though, right, that the Tzilumi community right, so really needs this more and, or isn't, isn't as into buying the book? Right. So, so one possibility is, that's why I mentioned about the delivery system, the Haredi community they typically walk to the stores more. Stores are more in the neighborhood. They're less likely to have automobiles. So they'll walk home, stop at a farm store and, and a bookstore, a Judaica store, and make an impulse purchase if they see it in the other counter. Thank God, all the stores, they really keep them up front. They're, they're hopping off the shelves. So that tea community is less likely to do that. The information that we got is that many, many of the Yishuvim have a less formal Svarim distribution system. It's like a kiosk instead of a store. So you also have diminished book sales. And the Dati community typically is more likely to be online and to have other resources uh, for learning about child safety and teaching child safety other than our book. If that's the only problem, that's fine. If that was the only issue, so they're getting the information elsewhere. That would be a good thing. I'd be delighted. But yet, we have a nagging feeling that for some reason, we haven't been conveying this well enough to the Dati community. And we had several meetings with thought leaders in the Dati Lumi community 
And a few of them came up with this idea. Actually, Rabbi Kenny Brander, was his, he's a dear friend of mine. Uh, he took over Artara Stone, and, and we've been friends for decades. He actually recommended it to me, and uh, we kicked the idea around, and it just made a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned before we went on the air a theory you had. I don't know if you want to talk about it now on the air, but you have a theory about a reason that the Datilumi communities, particularly maybe in the Shtachim in the West Bank, those communities that are gated communities, might in some way actually have a greater need for this than they even realize. You want to talk uh, about that That's at a all? great teaser. If you want to make a second version, no, a second, you bring me back, then we'll find it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I talk about, you know, I think information is important and valuable. And, and just like I need to look at, be realistic and, and, and reflect and, and self-evaluate, I think communities need to do this also. It first struck me, this, this idea of the gated community, when Rabbi Shai Shechter, you know, Rabbi Heschel Shlita's son, and I, together with a, a friend of ours, spent Shabbat in Talmon. I came to be Menachem the three families, Nebuchadnezzar, their beautiful children. And um, one of the families was in Talmon, and we went there for Shabbat. And there are a couple of miles on the way to Talmon that, that are in Palestinian area control. And naturally very anxious when we went through that area. And then it's right before the Yishuv, and then we pulled into the gate, and we all, like, we made it, you know? Sigh of relief. Sigh of relief. And that night, after, after we'd finished the, the Suda, I went to sleep for a few hours. I like to feel the culture of communities. So I woke up, I, and I started walking around the neighborhood at about 12, 1, 2 o'clock. And I literally covered the whole show. I was walking around, and there were hundreds and hundreds of Kanei Nahara teenagers schmoozing, walking, you know, doing the Garinim thing. And... I didn't see any adults. I didn't see any adults. I mean, maybe five or 10 adults everywhere. Everybody else was just kids having a good time. And it was beautiful to watch them interacting, but I, I, it just, it struck me. My, you know, I, I never really take that child safety hat off. I went to the, my host the next morning and I said, who's watching these kids? I said, I saw kids, preteens or teens also roaming around the streets. Who's watching them for, for child safety, you know, for, that shouldn't get abused? And he looked at me. If like, I didn't know what you were talking about, he didn't. He looked at me like I was crazy. He said, "What are you talking about? It's here." And I said, "Oh my goodness! I feel like I'm in Williamsburg now." <laughs> That's what I told him. <laughs> I feel like I'm in. They're a, not usually compared. And they're not usually compared. But I said that a new square, the square Hasidim, and you know, Vizhnitz, and, and actually in Satmar, you know, I I was very involved in the Nehemi Weberman case, where a Satmar uh, fellow was a horribly abusing girls. And, you know, I, I, we stood with the victim. I went to the trial every day to show my support for her. And um, one of the things that we noticed, that I was looking at the barriers. I always look at that. What are the barriers to, to effective child safety? And one of the barriers clearly was that the community over the, especially the Hasidic communities, typically shield their children to a great degree from their general population and uh, from secular media and from secular, you know. And the feeling is, well, everybody in here is great. And everybody outside is kind of suspect. And what you're really trying to tell the people is when one of the barriers that I had is I'm telling them that there are abusers in your community. It's a culture shock. And then when you say, well, the only way you're going to solve this is by going to the authorities that are outside the community, you're doing a double flip. So I do believe that as beautiful as it is to have this feeling of community just I think that Tilumi families should, and all families should be aware that this could be a barrier to their own understanding of the fact that people inside this fence could also have issues, could also have been abused as children, could also, and, and are, you know, uh, weren't treated properly and, and are more likely to abuse, or just that there are abuses everywhere. I know you wrote an article in 2008 called The Monster Inside. Yeah. And your opening anecdote is a story of a typical movie scene where the hero. Runs. I don't know movies, not me. I, of I heard not. No, somebody. I'm sure we've heard it. Like I, we wouldn't know from such things. <laughs> exactly. But I've heard that they run into a room, slams the door behind him, and now he can breathe a sigh. Everything's okay, and then he notices that the bad guy got in with exactly. him. I th- 
Yep. And when you build a wall, that's exactly the problem. Right. What if you're building a wall which contains the abuser right. as well? Right. And I wrote I, uh, that Meet Meet. You remember, what was that guy? Roadrunner? The, the Roadrunner, sure. That, the cartoon. That's what stuck in my mind. If there's one, it, there's one thing where the guy slams the door and goes, when he said this big monster there. And that's what I was really trying to convey. That was the initial article that I wrote in Mishpacha magazine. And I remember this was... This was 2008. It was a long time ago. You know, people were not even, you know, ready for that discussion, many people. But I think it was really important to convey to the people that if you build that wall and if you decide that you're going to try to inculcate your child, I think it's a beautiful thing. But just be aware that you're not going, you're much less likely to accept the notion that people inside are beyond reproach, that nobody here ever does anything like that. Um, in fact, by the way, if you look at some, you mentioned that article, um, anybody who wants to see it, they can just Google search Yaakov Horowitz Monster Inside and pick it up in, in on my website. I also wrote a few articles during the trial because it was a teachable moment. I wrote a piece, for example, called The Halo Effect. What it means is that when you make a, a prejudgment about someone, in other words, the re- original research was done in the army where sergeants were giving better reviews to the privates that looked handsome and put together. And not only on leadership, which is like a nebulous thing, but even rifle range. They were giving them better grades because they said, this guy's put together. He's a handsome person. He always dresses to the nines. He assumes he's going to do well. He's going to do well, right. And, and we, we have this with grading papers. When they grade essays, they cover the name. And not only that, someone grades all number three, the third. And not to, because if you did one and two from that person and you're flipping the pages and one and two essays, the first two essays were fantastic, you're going to... You already have a bias to assume the third's going to be good as well. Right, and if there's something you're not sure about, say, I probably meant that. So this plays into effect by when when you have people in the community that you look a certain way, they're one of us, you have a halo effect on them. And even if you do see, forensically, we look back at some of the terrible high-profile abuse cases, we say, well, why didn't we notice this? That he was always, you know, hanging, or he or she was, was was acting inappropriately, or late at night walking around with kids and whatever, because it's a halo effect. Well, that leads us to what parents really should look for when we already have that halo effect, and also the walls and the basic assumption that people who are in our communities are like us in all the positive ways. What would you recommend to parents in general to look for to make sure that their children? Are safe. That I mean this in two ways, both in terms of people to avoid, if we can say that, as well as in their own children, what signs are there that their child may be in trouble? So let's do the preventative part first. I think it's important for parents to talk about and think about the it, not the whom. What do you mean by that? that, that I heard that from a police chief in Alpine, New Jersey. Uh, we did a tag team. I was talking about child safety, and he spoke about general um, danger. And he said some very profound things. One of them was that people should judge the action, not the person. Okay? Which is, the, uh, it's really like a corollary of the halo effect. In other words, let's keep it on a practical level. You walk into shul, you're the second person in shul all morning, and you see a guy standing by the pushka box taking out shkalem bills, Right? So if it's somebody you know and respect, you're going to say he probably put in a 200 shekel bill and he's taken out some 20s. If it's somebody that looks suspicious, you're going to say he's a thief and you'll call the cops. So the action was the same, right? Someone was taking money out of a pushka box, out of a charity box. Um, Your interpretation was, well, this is what we do. We make a challenge. You take the action and the person and then you decide if it's dangerous. So separate them. That's what he said. Judge the it, not the whom. If you would be frightened to have a child of yours in a room alone with someone that was suspicious, then don't let him get by mitzvah lessons from someone alone that you respect and love and, and deeply revere. That's when we get into trouble. So that's the first message, that we should tell children, yes, even people in our community aren't, should not be doing things that make you uncomfortable, shouldn't be encroaching on your boundaries, shouldn't be asking you not to tell things. It's a really important part of the training. As for noticing what's wrong, you know, we know that kids who are in abusive situations, uh, uh, God forbid, if they were abused, there are especially, I really encourage parents to Google search signs that your kid is being abused. You know, you see they have fears that they didn't have before. They, they throw out things to their parents. They're embarrassed to have this conversation. So they throw things out like if you only knew what's happening or you see that they're afraid of 
going to places that they weren't afraid of before, sometimes extreme anger, bedwetting. We see stuff that's happening that wasn't happening before, like it should just turn your antennas on that something may be wrong. I'm always very, very concerned. I used to run a yeshiva, as I mentioned to you. There's this idea that you're implying now when you say, look at the it, not the whom, that we look at the action on its own. And I'm not speaking about something which is obvious, but something which can be interpreted in different ways. And one of the things that towards the end of my tenure in the yeshiva, I suddenly realized was, wow, you know, we didn't have, for example, windows on our doors. We just rented an old house. So I better keep the door open because I don't want anyone to misinterpret or even misremember, so to speak, anything that once happened. When you look at the action in isolation, you mentioned the example of the pushka. Right. It might be totally innocuous. Right. We're living now in a world where there's an assumption, which I think is good, that we believe the victim. When someone says he or she were abused, we say that happened. In the yeshiva world, there's a general tendency to hug your student. Maybe that's wrong. But what do we do to make sure, and I feel almost guilty even asking this question, but what do we do to make sure that someone who's innocent isn't accused of something which he didn't do, and the accusation alone, looking at that it and saying, oh, I saw him taking money out of the pushka, in this case, something which obviously was a hug or something like that, which actually was meant innocuously, and now his life is literally ruined. Right. So, so you know, I call that the gray area. I'm honored to be working with two groups representing many thousands of Israeli children in institutions. Uh, you know, I leave it to them if they want to publicize that we're having this discussion. But two major Datilumi networks of institutions I'm meeting with one today and one on Monday to discuss getting protocols in schools. And it's one of the areas that I think the Datilumi community here in Israel is not as advanced as the counterparts in the States, is the notion of getting protocols in schools and getting institutions. And you have all these great questions. Uh, you know, I tell people protocols are not going to stop an abuser from abusing. It'll help you spot some red flags earlier. But what it really helps is to stop the gray area things from happening. You know, should I, the questions that come up, it, what a protocol will will address, and some people will push back, especially, honestly, I'm being perfectly candid. People in my generation, I'm 60 years old, people in my generation are much more likely to, to push back against them because I've been doing it like this all my life. Um, I can tell you a funny one, <laughs> a little self-deprecation here. Myself, a true story, and I think it'll illustrate this point about what you're saying about about hugging kids and other things like that. When we started Yeshiva 23 years ago, one of my board members said that wanted to make charity boxes, pushka boxes for the families and grandparents. Um, and I said, yeah, it's just going to bring in a few bucks. He said, no, no, you have to get them trained that we should be on the list of charities. You're nodding your head yeah. as running yeshiva yourself. <laughs> well, it's yeshiva the clothes. We probably should have done that. <laughs> okay. Touche. So, so um, he, he said, I'm going to cover the full expense. He said, I'll cover the full expense. He hired a professional photographer, non-Jewish fellow, and he came to the charming guy. He came in. He said, look, I'm going to follow you around all day, and I'm just going to take pictures. And then... Make believe I'm not there. And and it really worked because after 20 minutes, I just went and did my thing. And a kid came and said something funny or whatever it was, and I gave him a hug. It was in a hallway. It wasn't a full frontal hug. It was like a side sort of... On With the a side. photographer there. With the photographer there. I right. was hugging 23 years ago. That's what, you know, I always tell... That's what you do. I always tell parents that... If you look, go online and say signs that a, a, a teacher is abusing, is grooming my child. And groom, for those who don't know, grooming means preparing them to be able to, to, to uh, encroaching on their boundaries so that they'll be able to abuse them. It's exactly what my generation would have given their back teeth to have someone do that to their child. Exactly what it says there. Takes an interest in the kid after school. That's what you call, what's that? A great Rebbe, right? right? Puts an arm around the kid, spends time with them, you know, all of that. Invites them over. Invites them the over. Stuff, right. and, and one of the pushbacks that I get when I do protocols is the Rebbeim, and, and that's why it's on one of the, my talking points today with the, with the group that I'm talking to and next week. Effective protocols is not just you print up pay, uh, uh, regulations and throw it at the staff but rather to do a collaborative effort. I was hired by a, a school in North America to do protocols in schools four or five years ago, and I said, I'm only doing it, I need two full days with the staff. 
And we met with every group separately because the preschool has different questions than the middle school. The middle school has different questions than the high school. You know, preschool will say, what should I do? I have to take kids to the bathroom. What am I supposed to do with that? You know, what am, and older kids will ask other questions. So what happened was this photographer was following me around and I, I, get, I get this kid the hug and it was really appropriate. It was like from the side, I kind of like put my arm around. Anyway, this guy comes back a few weeks later and he spreads a bunch of pictures on my desk Kids in the science, doing a science experiment, playing, yeah, praying, davening, you know. And in the middle, he put a picture of this picture of me. He says, Rabbi, this is your school. <laughs> he, I promise you. He said, this is your school. and Which at the time was a great compliment. Yeah, he and said. that would mean said, stay away. Said, yeah, I'm saying. He said, he, he said Rabbi, you know, I'm, I, I do this in schools, secular schools and Jewish schools. He says, you have such a good relationship with the kids. And, whatever, and, and they respect you. And they but, Anyway, we made the pushka box with the hug picture. Smack in the middle was the largest picture. Now, true story. Ten years later, the world was a different world already by then. I get a call from a principal of a yeshiva in the Midwest in America. And he says, Rabbi Horowitz, I have this Rebbe who hugs the kids. And some parents are getting very uncomfortable. How do you think I should handle it? And I told him, I promise you this is true. I said, you know, I'll tell you the truth. People used to do it. I used to do it, but I stopped. And, you know, today's climate. And as I was talking to him, I looked up and saw my pushka box on the desk. Because <laughs> one of the board, the board members said, I want, Rabbi, I want there to be a pushka box. I said, oh, my God. I, I, I hung up on the guy. I promise you. I ran downstairs to the lunchroom. I said, boys, the yeshiva's in a financial situation. Please bring in your pushkas tomorrow. We're having an ice cream party. <laughs> I promise you. I said, we're having an ice cream party. Don't break the pushka box at home. You're only getting credit if you bring the pushka in and we break it here. I wanted to burn all the things. Right. And I said, get from your grandparents. Two scoops if you get from a grandparent. Whatever. We, we had ice cream parties for a few days and I got rid of every one and burnt them. Every last one. Every last one. I hope it so. meant something different <laughs> 10 years some, ago. Right. 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 And, and, and this is what happens. I'm 60 years old. So like, you know, you're doing something for 20, 30 years and somebody comes along and says, you know, you can't do it. So you have all these. Well, well so how am I supposed to? What do I do? I have a kid that just lost a parent or that, you know, the parents are, you know, he's there. I, I, they need to do this. What am I? I'm not a robot, but you say, you can't do it. Even though it real, truthfully, it does erode some of that Talmud Rebbe relationship. It's a matter of the cost. What, what is it worth? Exactly. I'll tell you, I encourage any educators listening to this to ha have a look at it. Tarmasar made a contract addendum in 2003, then recommended that Yeshivot put them at the, added to the country. It was a two-pager directed the Metis Gedolia Torah, the Rosh Yeshiva, the Agudah and Termsar Rosh Yeshiva approved it um, and recommended that Yeshiva uh, add it to the contract and talked about boundaries and space and this. And I, right away, I added it to the Rabbeim's contract. I mentioned it at a staff meeting and the Rabbeim were really hurt. They came to me, it's important for people to know this, and they came to me that they called their colleagues and despite the fact that the Rashi Yeshiva did it, maybe 2% of the schools had done it that year. One of the Rebbeim, a, a, a very hush of a wonderful Rebbe, he looked up, he says, Rebbe, I'm not a gangster. Rebbe, you, you, you're writing all those things that you expect. So I said, Rebbe, this will protect you. If you follow these guidelines, no one can make an accusation against you. Right. And the truth is what you said about your, your concern, it's a painful healthy part of the transition. And, and you know, it's really important that people start moving in the direction of implementing these protocols. Well, and when I opened the door to my office, because we didn't have windows on the doors, I know ultimately about smucha, a person shouldn't believe in himself, but I wasn't frankly worried about myself. I was worried that somebody would say I was in a closed room. And that was something which we only realized in the last few years of the yeshiva that right. suddenly occurred. Have you found that this attempt to get protocols introduced in Israeli schools is working, or is I, it I, not I really? didn't even start yet to the, you know, to the, like I said, this is the first, one of the reasons, one of the thinking, one of the things that Rabbi Brander and I had discussions about, and, and the other Datilami thought leaders, was that doing this Makari Shon project, which is the reason I'm here in Israel, you know, I could have given it out, I paid everybody for it, <laughs> I could have stayed home, but I wanted to be here to have these conversations with Edgy. I'm hoping that this will generate um, the types of conversations, the serious conversations about getting protocols and about changing the norms. It's a big deal. This takes years. I actually scheduled, which I, I usually don't do it this way, 
I'm, I'm coming back in January and I'm coming back in March again. It's my long-term, long-term, short-term, whatever you want to call it, over the next few months, Stuart and I, working together, we hope that more Datilumi and Haredi Yeshivot will start engaging in a, conver- in, a, in a communal conversation about enacting these protocols and hopefully, you know, in a very positive way, doing it on such a wide scale will hopefully get some real, really important conversations you know, about this whole protocol issue. And I, I can tell you, it, it pains me deeply to mention, but it needs to be discussed, the fact that I'm often called in to clean up a mess in a community that's, it's heartbreaking when a Rebbe or a Mora, a teacher, violates some of these boundary issues. And, and honestly, nobody really knows if anything wrong happened. And, you know, a black issue White issue is great. Black issues are terrible. But everybody understands. Somebody abused the kid. You, you toss, you know, call That's the cops. Easy. That's call easy. the cops. The gray stuff is challenging. I see this Rebbe or this Mora, this teacher, whatever, spending a lot of time with the kids. I see him alone walking around and, and you know, and it, it reaches a fever pitch. Parents are thankfully much more aware. And they start talking among themselves and then the hysteria sets in and bang, there's an accusation. And I'm telling you, Practically, several situations over that I was involved in over the past couple of years, very high profile. Teachers who've been there for a couple of decades were, were fired, were, were, were some let go quietly, some very high profile. And, and this is all for gray area things. Yeah, one of them especially was very high profile that was a serious grooming, you know, what we would call today grooming activities. And I don't even know if the person was aware of what they were doing. And and they're from an older generation. It so happens that these typically were. It typically happens like this. Look, you know, I do workshops. Well, it's almost like they didn't get the memo because that's how they were. That's how they were raised. And 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 you you go back. Look, people parent usually the way they were parented. One of the things that challenges that I have when I do when I do parenting classes is. Many of the people in the audience were raised in authoritarian homes. (laughs) If I may, (laughs) we're talking on such heavy topics. So uh, a cute one. True story. This guy calls me that that um, he, he emailed me. Please, I have to talk to you. His son took chair and furn in his room, and was throwing furniture at the walls. Destroyed the sheetrock. He, he absolutely made a churban of the room and was breaking things. And my son went crazy. So I said, "What happened?" So he said, "I took away his phone." The teenager. So I said, "What did he do wrong?" He uh, was very fresh to my wife, to his mother. So I said, what does this have to do with the phone? So, to, to, you know, right. what, what, what is the, why do you take away his phone? He says, because it makes him crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I said, hello, why did you call me? So, you know, he was, well, <laughs> so I'm saying, Machamaitzi, as my grandmother would have said, you know, whatever. So I'm the father of seven. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so what, what happened? His parents used to do things to him that made him crazy. So right. we, he can't. So that's what you do. That's, that's what you that, do. That's, that's right? Tarvonish. You exactly. make him crazy. And one of the, in fact, a, a very important corollary of this is, and this is a really important discussion, you know, and thought that I really encourage listeners to really think about this, is what are you doing to get your children comfortable talking to you about uncomfortable stuff. I'm actually speaking here in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Uh, that's my, well, one of my, to- my topics, Matzai Shabbat, is about this. And if your kids can't discuss these things with you, then you really, you know, uh, abuse is a very uncomfortable thing. If somebody's being groomed, worse, they're made to feel uncomfortable about it, and they're very reluctant to talk to their parents. If you're parenting in an authoritarian style, that dog then it's get already on. over. Forget it's, it. It's, it's over. over. Right. Have, so like the that. workshops I do. But it's difficult for everybody. doesn't right? matter if you're authoritarian workshops, or not. I just started a new class that I've been giving the last few months. It's called Would Your Kids Tell You? Whoa. Okay. That's what it's called. And, uh, would you, and it was actually based on a situation, a high-profile abuse situation in the States where the, the principal was arrested for soliciting pornographic pictures, you know, inappropriate pictures of the kids. Uh, you may have heard the story. And I marveled at the fact that this 14, it, it stopped because a 14-year-old kid told his parents. And I said, my goodness, I didn't, of course, want to intrude on their, I would have loved to interview those parents and find out how do you do it. Because the kid, imagine the conversation started, you know, mom, dad, you know, Abba, Ima, um, I was change, exchanging these pictures with a girl because the guy posed as a girl. Right, yeah. And, and, <laughs> can you imagine? Right. So getting this 
is a whole new ballgame. For those of us who were raised, we didn't tell our parents anything. So you can't get the results that you want. And this 14-year-old is already essentially admitting he did something which his That's parents were proud right. of. It's, a, it's a, such a tough situation. Right. So the abuser, the groomer, knew what he was doing. It's exactly. Uh, right. Now, just to finish up on that issue of protocols, I know that when we used to have meetings of the various yeshivas, we talked about all sorts of things, important and unimportant. But one thing we never talked about, at least when I was there, I didn't go to every meeting, mm-hmm. but we never talked about protocols. I certainly hope that if yeshivot for post-high school Americans in Israel are listening to this right now, they'll think about having a meeting to discuss protocols. Yeah, and it's not that Chas Shalom, I think that anyone's doing anything wrong as far as I know. It's more that you have to protect the students and you have to protect yourselves. One accusation, true or untrue, will destroy your yeshiva. However, as I said, I did not go to every meeting and I also have not been involved in yeshiva administration for well over four years now. So it could well be that such protocols are in place. I certainly hope so. I want to ask you something else. You mentioned sure. a moment ago about how black and white are easy, gray is difficult. But it seems that in certain cases that you've been involved in, Rabbi Horowitz, for example, Nehemia Weberman, right. that Satmar community, right. that's a black and white case, and it was not at all easy. It wasn't as simple as send them to the police. We know that the victim was hounded out of the community, at least right. as far as I heard about so it. So was I. I got death threats. So It, it was really nasty. That's obviously but the horrible. Thing is, but nobody saw the black stuff there. It's all her word, but it's, I mean, is right. that really not called black and white? If but but he this locks is a, on the inside right, of his right. door. So, so one of the things that's, I have a picture at home of Nehemi Weberman in a pizza shop with a 16-year-old girl, 12 o'clock at night, in middle of Williamsburg. Now, imagine... Not if, that girl, a different girl. A different girl. I'll show you the picture. A guy took a picture, Nehemi Weberman, he was 50 years old at the time, a Hasidic guy from the community... Took, takes off his glasses in the street not right. to look at women. He's sitting there in a pizza shop, 12 o'clock at night or whatever, 10 o'clock at night maybe. Sitting together with a 16-year-old girl. I'll show you the picture. Oh, getting ice cream at a, at a pizza shop, whatever, like sitting next to a girl. The question is, why didn't anybody notice? That's a gray thing. So the, That's it, gray. Right. I, I really encourage anyone who's listening and wants to do homework and read up and understand this grooming and all of this. There's a fantastic article by Malcolm Gladwell. It's called In Plain View, explaining the Penn State scandal and how Jerry Sandusky got away with it. And one of the things that he writes there, and I see this with so many abusers, that he always did goofy things. And when he did crazy things like taking out a girl, Nehemia Weberman was known to be a miracle worker with teens at risk. So if you saw him doing goofy things, that's Nehemia being Nehemia. That's the shita. Yeah, he writes, and they do it in plain view. They do it right in front of everybody. So that if you see them, you say, yeah. The line was, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, please, that's Jerry being Jerry. One of the big scandals here with, a, with recently one of the seminaries, you spoke about seminaries, where, uh, you know, owner of four seminaries, you know, got, got the whole thing with being right. involved with some of the girls. He was take, picking kids. I spoke to staff in the school. He was picking girls up 12 o'clock at night and taking them out. But since that's what he does and he's a miracle he worker, that's, that's Jerry totally being Jerry, okay. right? So Jerry that's part Jerry. of the... In fact, one of the, one of the people, w- I did a radio interview the night of his conviction. He was convicted, Nehemi Webman. You know, when I st- decided to, in a very difficult decision to support the victim, I never believed that, she, that he would be convicted. I never thought she would survive the trial. You thought she'd just say, I can't do this. I, I, yeah, I can't go through it. the pressure was, I mean, uh, unbelievable. But he was convicted 59 out of 59 counts. So that night I did a show, and, and some of Nehemi's friends, whatever, were calling up being very hostile to me, and that I just dealt with. But one of the guys, he said, look, I'm Nehemi's friend, he could have done it. Maybe he did it. I don't know. He was very respectful. And then he says, let me ask you something, Rabbi Horowitz. He says, Yiddish, if you're going to accept this, what happens if they say this about you? That was his question. What happens if a girl comes and says, or a boy comes and says, you abused me? What was your response to that? So I told him, and that's the message for your listeners. I told him like this. I said, my philosophy is that uh, an accusation is a piece of Velcro. How do you say Velcro in Hebrew? Velcro. <laughs> so an accusation is a piece of Velcro. Poor practice is the second piece of Velcro. Velcro doesn't stick to glass. So I said, if somebody comes and says, Horowitz abused me, which, by the way, some of his folks were writing it in the comments. It's still there on the Daily News and New York Post articles. Horowitz abused me and da, 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 whatever. Weberman supporters. Yeah. You have to tell me where it happened. And I'm not alone with anybody. So I, 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 in fact, one of my students... You need that second piece of information. Give me details. That's the, the reason that Nehemi Webber was convicted was not because the girl said... Because the jurors, if you read 
after the trial were agonizing over this. But there was a second piece of Velcro there. He locked his office. He had four-hour sessions with the girl. That's a relationship. That's not a therapy. He took her on an 11-hour ride. Those behaviors, together with the accusation... Those are the second piece of Velcro. That's the second piece of Velcro. So that's really the message. The protocols tries to get glass there instead of Velcro. That's what I, tell, that's what I told the Rabbeim in my yeshiva. I said, if you follow this, you become a piece of glass. And got an accusation, God forbid, could come and could make your life miserable. But ultimately, if you follow these protocols, if you don't do these gray things, then it's almost impossible that it would stick to you in, in a meaningful way. Wow. A few days before Thanksgiving, moving on from protocols, this is sort of the next step, You know, the Girl Scouts tweeted out the following message. I'm going to quote it. She doesn't owe anyone a hug, not even at the holidays. That was a tweet from the Girl Scouts of America. And this is referring to non-sexual touching. It's talking about grandparents or a great aunt. And the claim is partially the idea that you don't have to touch this person because if you learn that touching is owed to somebody, then, and I'm interpreting this, but this is how I understood it and read about it. If you believe that touching is owed to somebody, then in places where it's far more inappropriate and perhaps sexually related, then you may also be convinced that you owe somebody a hug or some other inappropriate touch. Do you think that the Girl Scouts went too far to say, you know, if your bubby wants to hug you and you don't want to, don't hug her? Because other people have said, that's ridiculous. She brought your parents into the world and indirectly you into the world. How can you say you don't have to hug your grandmother? I'm curious, Rabbi Horowitz, what you think about this. So you just reminded me, Scott, you just reminded me of a situation that I had about... You know, when I first started talking about this 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I got a call from the owner of a summer camp, of a boys' summer camp, and he said, Yankee, knock it off. This was the first day of camp. He said, okay, we got the message. Cut it out already. Meaning we're good friends, you know, so so he said it tongue-in-cheek. But he said, said, we got the message. What happened? 12-year-old kid got off the bus. And he said, I was standing right there, and his counselor said, Shalom Aleichem. He said, my mother said I shouldn't touch you. <laughs> so that's what he said, Yankee, right. stop it. Knock it off already. You're doing a great job. Enough. I think it is an important message. Uncomfortable as it is for grandparents, I do tell my grandchildren, I horse around, with the, like I make a fool out of myself like any other, you know, any other grandparent. Um, I always tell my grandchildren, if you don't like, if, if you don't, like, if I tickle, if I'm doing something that I give them a ride or whatever it is, and I said, if you, are, if you don't like what Zaidi's doing, just tell me stop and I'll stop right away. And, I, and when I do workshops with grandparents who typically, you know, wouldn't get this, you know, and feel very offended in this, um, I tell them it's the greatest gift that you could give your grandchildren because you're teaching them that even I, who love you, you have the right to say no. And when parents tell me, I really get a lot of this. When parents tell me, my father-in-law gives my granddaughter, my daughter, like these slobbery kisses, and she complains about it. I say, tell him to stop. And if he doesn't stop, say, I'm not going to come over. Because this is this is real. There are many grandparents who are abusing the grandchildren. Now, God forbid, I'm not saying this grandfather is. But if you allow, if the child comes and complains, and then you say, it's okay, he's Zaidi then why can't Zaidi do unspeakable things then? Maybe that's also okay. Or it also looks like a continuum. It's okay, that Zaidi. Exactly. And, well, that guy's that, an uh, uncle, exactly. and that's a cousin, exactly. and that's a friend. Exactly. Right. So, so it's part of, and you know what I tell? I tell them to say, I tell the parents, say, my grand, they're not listening. So I say, look, it's a different generation. This is how we're training our children. Our children are trained to be able to say that I don't like this. And do you want Aviva to be able to tell this to an abuser? If you want her to have that self-confidence, then put aside your pride and let her practice on you. You know, Rabbi Horowitz, I could talk to you literally all day. There's so much I want to talk about. And I also think, if I can say so, perhaps egotistically for our listeners, this is a very important conversation. I want as many people as possible to hear this. I just have one final thing to talk about, which has nothing to do with our larger topic today, but it's something that I, as an educator, really appreciate. The yeshiva I used to run, Yisodeh Torah, along with Rabbi Pesach Wuliki, was known for skill building. And I know that you're involved in a project called Bright Beginnings. It's a book you showed me right now. I have in my hand. It's uh, from Bab Metziah, Yehoshlomidat. It looks like an amazing project. Could you tell me a little bit about what you're doing with this? Yeah, sure. So thank you. Thank you for your interest. And I, I, you know, I loved watching your eyes when you saw it. I can see when somebody gets it. 
So, you know, as a mechanic, you get it. So it really started from my experience. I, I was really, I'm not proud of it, but I was a terrible student in school. You know, the, the restless energy that has me doing all of this stuff. Um, and the ability, I tell, I, I spoke to, I tell this when I speak to kids who aren't, who, who are in alter, alternative schools, I say, I'm not saying I'm a successful adult, but everything that made me who I am was a lot of trouble in eighth grade. Uh-huh. You know, the, I said the same thing to get up at an Agoda convention in front of 4,000 people and say the sexual abuse in our community takes a certain amount of chutzpah and not caring what people think. Well, well, if you're 13 years old, <laughs> those aren't necessarily me, though, that people want you to exactly. express. And the boundless energy that lets me do these projects. You know, I said every one of these things, I said, I told you, if you parents, if your kid's struggling, I made a video, it's on my YouTube channel. Just look, Yaakov Horowitz, life is longer than school. <laughs> that, that was the message, my message to the kids. Because of that, I, I, I was actually in college pre-med, if you must know. Um, it was a sore subject with my mother, last Shalom, <laughs> till her dying day. Um, so I wanted a light job. I was playing, I was on a basketball team when I was 17, and I wanted a really light job, but I didn't have to work too much. I had an hour a day of learning groups. I became a learning rebbe instead of a counselor. And um, I told the head, the, the head learning rebbe, the learning director, I said, do me a favor, take five kids that you just made your life sick last year. Give them to me. You'll never see them all summer. He's thrilled. Oh, my God. He said, <laughs> he said can I give you 12? Yes. <laughs> so I had five, And I just fell in love. I said, you know, and ultimately, you know, I said, you know, there, there are enough dentists out there. This is what I was made for. Wow. Um, you know, Dick Butker said, there's the accountants and lawyers. I was meant to hit people on a football field. You know? so, and he so did it well. He, he did, did it very well. well, right? You see, can you imagine him as an accountant? So, no. They, no, right. So so I started teaching at 22, and I, in Yeshiva Torah Semis in Brooklyn, I volunteered for the weakest track of the eighth grade. I still remember Rabbi Schwartz, I'll show him his face when I told him this. He said, you know, you'll never get an Aleph class for as long as you live. I did this, and I noticed after a few years, after a few weeks, that the kids, the eighth graders who came to me, had absolutely no skills. They didn't know how to break apart a Hebrew word for for Chumash, and especially Gemara. They they just didn't even know what they didn't know. They were bewildered. They were bewildered when I spoke to them. They were bewildered why they didn't know it. They said, Rebbe, you know, I I do a lot of things. I don't know what the heck is going on. And what I did is I made, I called spring training. I made two weeks. I told the kids, we're going to do two weeks that we're just going to do skills. You're going to hate it. I said, I told the kids, I said, I give you my word. I promise you, midwinter break time, if you tell me, Rebbe, I don't know why you did this. This was a waste of time. I promise you I'll add two weeks to your midwinter break. I said, I'll give it to you in writing. You have to try as hard as you can, and then you have to tell me, I don't know why you did this. This was a waste. And I patiently told the kids, you know, who these people were, what uh, um, how logical, I used to teach them how to make logical flowcharts like they do for telemarketers to, to lay out the Gemara for them. And ultimately, when I started my yeshiva, I was very deeply committed to, to having this type of program where you break words down, where you have visual uh, diagrams and stuff and, and visual content. And then we rolled this into, we have, I have a few books on Chumash, and and now we're doing a whole Gemara series. I mean, Baruch Hashem, we're, we're, this is our fourth year, third year of Gemara books. It's called Bright Beginnings. Uh, and um, thank God we're in over 100 yeshivas. It's already. unbelievable. Yeah, we, really sold, unbelievable. we sold uh, 12,000 copies of our first Brachas book. So we have Brachas. And now we're doing Elamitzias because some yeshivot start with different um, books. I'm really excited about it. I'm actually working now. My dream is to do, I have a I'm working on a business plan for a four-year curriculum that kids can come in at fifth grade through eighth grade with with benchmarks and teaching tools. I want to have a little cheat sheet with with diagrams that the kids can have and flowcharts to help them with the logic. You know, we we assume look. Gemara, I have a secular friend, a secular Jewish friend that was on my email list. <laughs> he says, he's, uh, and by the way, you listeners, you can follow me on, on Twitter and Facebook and, and LinkedIn and Instagram. It's just ya- at Yaakov Horowitz. Um, with one A. One A, one A. And, or, and I have, we have a YouTube channel with a lot of my, my videos. So I have a, a secular Jewish friend of mine, and, and, and he's on my email list. And, and he says, he says, could you give me the elevator pitch on the Gemara? So I said, okay, here's the story. Talmud is tort law in a foreign language with no punctuation and some of the pages out of order. <laughs> so, so I said, you think they need a little intro? Just like you said, the halo effect messes us up with abuse things. Right. We're so emotionally attached to Gemara and we so desperately want our children to learn it 
that we do illogical things. Oh, sure. And 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 t- expecting a, a, a 10, 11 year old child, it's it's tort law. It really is. And here's another thought experiment. Imagine you go to Columbia or Harvard or any or to an Israeli school here, and you say you want to take a Talmud class. What would they give you as prerequisites? If you were in a college program. In and, a college program? Yeah. They're actually, to, right. But what would they give you as prerequisites? Okay, I want to take this. What do you need? In ta- so two years of Hebrew, two years of Aramaic, history of the of the of what was going on at the time. You see, here in a regular yeshiva, the prerequisite is open the cover. <laughs> That's right. I'd say, what's right. the introduction? Uh, F in the Gemurah, you know? <laughs> and, and again, it's all these stuff, these things, the challenges come from good reasons. We want our children to master Gemara. But... Taking a child and not prepping them, not giving them the tools they need in advance, I, and 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 it's the amount of hours I I I, I learned. I went to Tervidas, a regular mainstream yeshiva. Nobody believes me. We learned Gemara for two hours a day in twelfth grade. Every, two hours a day in twelfth grade in Tervidas. Tervidas. Rabbi Yisrael Reisman, Rabbi Avram Shor, Rabbi uh, you know all these they can my contemporaries. I was running around in the hall, but they you know they were, so the, the the serious learners we, we dismissed at six o'clock. They went down to the base marriage till one in the morning, and guys like me were running around, whatever. But there were two formal hours of Gemara. Day. That's but, now, if you weren't good at Gemara, here's the issue: if you weren't good at Gemara, quote unquote. So Lahavdal, it was like not liking biology and physics. In a, in a, in a, you know, so you had two lousy periods, you know. So you had two hours a day that were struggling. Today, and and it's unfortunate. I really think it's unfortunate. Uh, if you, I wrote an article called "It Doesn't Start in Tenth Grade" about this whole thing, that uh, mishpacha series. It's coming for a good place. They're learning more and more and more hours per day. If a kid today, and unfortunately the Tehillimi community is also doing a lot of it, and it bothers me. I go to them and say, "What are you doing this for?" What happens is that that if they're not good at Gemara at a young age. They have a tenuous relationship with religion because they're doing this hours. Because of, that's the entire day, or at least that's half the, the portal. Day. That's, that's, if you're not, it's this thing. I mean, you're talking about a topic which is it drives me crazy. I'm I mean, back frankly. in January. Oh my gosh! You, you know? want to do a talk? Please on Gemara? invite me back, Rabbi Harris. Please come back. We're going to yeah. talk about Gemara next time. You There's so it. much to talk about. You get it. But you know, I see kids who can't learn Gemara as well as their peers are sugbet Jews in people's eyes. That's what I'm saying. It's a terrible thing. Forget people's eyes in their eyes. But all the, but it's sometimes it's, it's a reflection eyes, of what they see from the others. Of the course, principal said, but, this guy's a good Jew because he learns Gemara well. But they walk into class and they know they don't know Gemara. They don't know what's flying. Right. And what happens is they, that, that, that because it's being learned so much, I, <laughs> I tell the principals, I say, listen to me, you want your kid to love astronomy, would you teach it to him 10 hours a day? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I, it's, a, it's another, just an illogical thing. But, you know, that's what everybody's doing in the Oilam and the Kens. You know, you got to be pragmatic. So there's a lot more to talk about. Bezrat Hashem in January, we'll talk again. I really appreciate that. The book is called Right Beginnings and also Let's Stay Safe, which is now in Hebrew, Yiddish, in different versions for different communities as well as English. 30,000 copies being distributed in Makori Shon this Friday. Rabbi Horowitz, thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you here with thank me on the so show. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure back in January. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please follow me on Twitter. My handle is at JewishCoffeeH. Like the Jewish Coffee House page on Facebook. And please go to our page, JewishCoffeeHouse.com, where in the next month, we expect to inaugurate our completely revamped website with lots of great new features, podcasts, a written blog, and more. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.